Hey, good morning. You know, we uh, spent a lot of time uh, and have as of late spent some time talking about, <clears throat> of course, prophecy. Where are we on the timeline? Are we, you know, how close are we? What's going on in the world? And how does that really, you know, stack up with what scripture describes uh, as being the last days? And, um, you know, as, as you know, <clears throat> I live in the daily expectancy of Jesus coming to snatch us away even today. You know, I, I, I love it. I, I live with that sense that, you know, today could be the day that he comes for, for his bride. You know, in Romans, Paul talks about when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then God begins to, you know, um, uh, work again with Israel. And of course, we build an entire sense of understanding around lots of passages that help us understand um, the meaning of these things and that and, and, and such. But in general, there's a point in time when the last Gentile will come into the church <clears throat> and Jesus will come and get his bride. There's a wonderful marriage analogy that kind of helps paint that picture as well. The idea of the father sending the son once the, the house is ready, go get your bride and that kind of thing. Well, none of us know when that is. I mean, the father sends the son in that analogy. <clears throat> and, you know, there's something akin to that maybe in play, you know, when it comes to the timing of the rapture. Excuse me. Just uh... So that being said, we don't know when that's going to be. Um, but we do live with a daily expectancy. He might come for his church today once that last Gentile comes in, which doesn't mean that the last Gentile that's ever going to get saved is going to come in. It just means that God has a, a number or a point at which the last one will come in prior to his moving into his last, you know, uh, you know, very last seven-year, last days uh, plans. And so with that being said, we don't know. And so we, we live with the expectancy, much like a bride would for her bridegroom to come and get her uh, when the father says, go get her. So uh, I love that analogy, and I love not just the, the sense of the anticipation and timing, but I love the longing sense that is in there. The bride wants her bridegroom to come and get her, and she is waiting and she is ready and it's the focus of her attention. It's just everything about her life at that point is about, you know, um, looking for his coming. And so I think believers ought to live that way. But a, good, uh, a couple of people asked a really good question, you know, in, re in regard to that uh, over the last few days. You know, how do we live in those days, you know, in these days when we know that his coming could be at any point? Do we just go on and make plans, make choices? look to the future and, 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 you know, build toward those kinds of things in our lives and that, or, or what? You know, that raises, uh, it's a good question because it, it tends to raise some discussion in circles that discuss things like the timing of the rapture and, and those kinds of things, and es eschatology in general. But especially when it comes to questions of the rapture, uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, all those, uh, amillennial, you know, and all the different uh, ideas that come up in the conversation. Um, and, and typically, a critique of the, of the pre-trib view is that, um, you know, if we're waiting for Jesus to come today, then we're not going to be doing anything else. It's just, you know, we're going to sit back and wait and just, you know, not get plugged into anything else going on in life because this is where today could be the day. Um, I suppose that might be true for some people, but I don't have any idea what that feels like personally. I, I don't, I think it's a subjective argument because it, it depends on the personality of the of the person who's waiting, you know, but as for me, and hopefully as for you, um, you know, we want to be about our master's business when he comes, you know, when he comes to get us, I want to be doing this or 
you know, doing something with my family that, you know, we're, you know, or with the church or something. I want to be, uh, I want to be walking in a way that is pleasing to him, maybe even about his business and that, doing some, uh, you know, some of that which he's given me to do, um, you know, when he comes. Uh, so, but, but how, how do you live in this period of time that this tension exists in? Years ago, um, uh, Tony Evans was teaching at a Founders Week at Moody in Chicago when we were living in Illinois. And we were there, and I, I think we were some friends, but he was teaching that night. And he, uh, in the midst of his talking about this kind of, uh, in his message during this particular time, uh, to part of the topic, he uh, spoke about how we live in the eschatological dialectic. Now, don't be impressed, I practice that. But the eschatological dialectic, the idea that we're living between the now and the not yet. And I thought that was really well put, you know, because there is a tension that exists between what we're expecting and knowing could come at any time and where we are right now. And if we're living in that expectation, how do you think about the future in terms of your personal life or your family or you know, kids going to college, or do I get married, or whatever. You know, the, the, the real daily important stuff that we think about. And those are important things. You know, um, there is, uh, there, there is, there is a, it's a tough place to be in some senses, because we do live in a, in a place where we, we don't know when Jesus will come. Now, I'm, I'm personally of the belief that it's, 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 really close. I don't, ex like I said the other day, I don't expect to grow old. I don't expect it to be a hundred years from now. I don't, ex I, I, I think it's inside the next 10 years from now. I mean, it, it literally, I, every day, I think this is when the rapture can happen. Um, and so it, it motivates me, but it doesn't preclude me from making choices that may be longer than today or may have implications that reach beyond this week or this year or the next 10 years. Because at the end of the day, I don't know when Jesus will come. And he'll come when he's going to come. He'll come when the timing is exactly right. Paul talks about in, uh, in Romans, how the, uh, in Romans 11, how there's a point where the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And God, um, you know, uh, as we build our sense of the prophetic picture, uh, once the church is full to the point that God has determined, he'll send his son to snatch her away and he'll once again turn his focus on Israel and work through her in those last seven years, Daniel's 70th week. Uh, the tribulation period in that. So, which is a period of time I don't think the church will be here for. Um, you know, um, there is this wonderful analogy uh, of the rapture where um, the, the, the bridegroom is building onto the house owned by his parents or, you know, by his father. And the father comes out and inspects the house to see how it's going and see when it's finished and this needs to be worked on, let's get that right and all this kind of thing. And uh, once it's done, the father says, he inspects it, he looks at it and says, okay, it's done, now go get her. And then he goes and he gets his bride. Well, the bride, uh, you know, the bride on the other hand is waiting for the bridegroom to finish the work. He's working feverishly to get it done because he wants to be with her, she is waiting impatiently because she so wants to be with him. And she doesn't know when the father is going to say it's ready. And she doesn't know when the son's going to finish. So she waits because every day this could be the day. And then one day she sees him coming and it's the day, you know. Father sends him, he goes and gets her, sweeps her off her feet and they 
uh, they live happily ever after. And there's, I, I love the beauty of that analogy, um, not just because of, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the not knowing the time, the anticipatory element of it, but built into the anticipatory element of it is the longing for the bridegroom. It's, it's not just, oh, get me out of this house. It's, you know, that I'm living, I want to go be with you. It's, I want to be with you. It's that part of it that is, that is the reason for the anticipation. It's the joy that is going to be experienced when they're together. It's the, finally we get to be one, you know? And so she's waiting so expectantly uh, for him. And I think that that is, in my mind, the most beautiful element of the whole thing because there's that longingness of it. It's, I want to be with you. Not just, I want to get out of here. Clearly, I want, you know, like the bride, I want the new life that is coming. But it's not really just about getting out of something. It's about going to something or to someone. And I think that's, in my opinion, the most, to me, the most beautiful part of it. So we live in that place where we ought to be longing to see Jesus. Now, that being said, that should help answer the question, how do we live? Um, you know, if our lives are really just about ourselves and all this kind of thing, we might not be motivated to look for him at all. If our lives are just about everything that's wrong in the world, our motivation might be a little bit askew. Yes, we do want to get out of here, but really, I want to see him. And like I said a moment ago, when he comes, I want to be doing those things that he would be about. I want to be actively, you know, in the midst of those things that are important to him and that he loves. And, and, and in, 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 in connection with that, the things that I love about him, you know, these are the things I want to be doing. Um, so I think that how do we live? How do we choose to live? I think in some respects, we live the way we should always be living as Christians. Uh, and that's that we are, uh, we have a sense of the priority of, of, of Christ himself and those things that he would have for us to be about, uh, about his business and that. I think that we make choices with him in the middle of it. We don't know when he's coming, so we can't say, I'm not going to go on vacation this month because he might come tomorrow, so why, why even bother? We can't say, well, I'm not going to put my kid in school because I want them to have, you know, build a life for themselves because Jesus might come tomorrow or today. <clears throat> I think we, we go about living our lives the way that... Um, the way that we do, but always, and this should always have been true and should certainly always be true if we've never thought of it this way, that we should make our decisions and approach our lives like believers ought to make their decisions and approach their lives. There's a passage in Colossians actually that I was reading that really kind of um, kind of came to mind in this regard. I'm going to read it. Um, this is Paul writing to the Colossian church, a church that he did not plant by the way. He's uh, Epaphras planted the church, and he is pouring into this church with this letter. And the overarching theme of the letter is the Christ of the church, um, bringing an elevated sense to the person of Christ and a deeper understanding of our place in him, uh, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and we're complete in him. Passages like this, um, you know, don't, don't go after... Uh, man's philosophies, or even holy days as a substitute for the real knowledge of him. These things were a shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. Now, uh, these are the kinds of things Paul talks about here in Colossians. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Paul talks to, uh, in writing to the Colossians, uh, 
tells them that this letter ought to be read to the Laodiceans. Why? Well, as we read later on with the Laodiceans, they are lukewarm. They're a church that, um, at least later on when Jesus writes to them uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches, we see that they are a church that Jesus is on the outside trying to get in. And so here in this letter, we have to wonder if, um, if there's elements of that starting to appear or whether the Holy Spirit, just in anticipation for where they were going to be, was going to make sure this letter was read to them sometime prior to their decline or something like that. So this is the theme of the book of Colossians, elevating uh, the person of Christ and recognizing him in all of his glory and all of these things. And so it's in that context that, uh, that, that Paul says this. Um, he's, he, in verse 24, he talks about how he's rejoicing in his sufferings for their sake. And in his flesh, he, uh, uh, he says, I do not share, uh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, he is continuing that which Jesus began, even including the afflictions um, and such. And so, verse 25, of this, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been made manifested to his saints. He's referring now to the idea of the mystery of the church and the riches that come with it um, and all of this. He has poured himself into this work. Uh, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The fact that Christ lives in us and he is our hope of glory, our sure, assured hope. Not, I'm wondering if it's going to happen, but a absolutely certain established hope rooted in the fact that Christ is in us. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Uh, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, Paul, I should point out, when you read the Thessalonian letters, uh, or, or his writings to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lived in the anticipation of Jesus coming in his lifetime. Uh, he talked about the glorious moment when we're, um, you know, when we're snatched away, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll ever be with the Lord. Um, he lived with that sense too. I think a plain reading of the passage would lead you to understand that as he wrote them and encouraged them with these words and encouraged them to encourage each other with these words, um, that, that, you know, part of the reason it was so encouraging is because it could happen at any time. And so, in spite of the fact that he lived with expectancy, and by the way, he didn't also only live with the expectancy of Christ coming for him in the, in the rapture, but he also lived under the daily, uh, the daily threat of death. He lived under the daily persecutions and such. And so, nonetheless, he poured himself into that work, knowing that at any moment Jesus might come for him, or that at any moment he might die and go to be with the Lord. One way or another, he lived in the daily understanding that he could go be with Jesus at any time. Uh, and so, therefore, he poured himself into the work of making Christ known to everybody, so that he might, and not only that, but helping them grow in maturity to Christ, that they might uh, ultimately. Um, to know him like he does and that kind of thing. And so just super massively small summary of that. Uh, obviously much more has been said and can be said on that. But, um, but therein lies something important for us. Um, none of us not only knows when the rapture will happen, but none of us also know when our last day is, rapture or not. You know, I might finish this, I might go in the kitchen, slip, fall, crack my head open and die. I mean, who knows, right? That's morbid. But 
you know, who knows? I mean, anything can happen at any time. None of us knows when our last day is, whether it's just naturally or through an accident or through the rapture. Um, and so why, why would we not live with the kind of passion and, and desire to serve the Lord that Paul exhibited uh, when he lived under threat every day? Um, I think therein again lies the answer. How do we live between, uh, in the eschatological dialectic, if I worked on that word, you know I'm going to use it a few times. How do we live in that place? How do we live between the now and the not yet? Well, the answer to that question should be sort of just the lifestyle of the believer in general. Prioritizing Jesus, putting him at the center of all of our decisions and plans and purposes, spending time with him daily, being about his business. Um, yes, we live our lives and we do the things that we do just in normal life, just like they did back in the first century. But we have the added bonus of knowing that at any point, we might leave it all behind and be with him. Um, I don't think there's any reason to, um, you know, to, to find a conflict in those ideas unless we're pouring ourselves wholeheartedly into the things of the world. But to have a home or to send your kid to school or to, to have a family, to get married, um, you, know, to, uh, you know, to interview for the better job, whatever it is, do those things. <clears throat> because in every one of those contexts, God has something for you to do, and so pour yourself into it. Um, but always know that at any moment, you could be standing before your Maker. And so, um, you know, was it Moses I said, you know, um, prepare to meet your God. You know, there's, uh, in the context of, 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 of their setting in Israel there, on a, on a you know, a perpendicular and an upward view, I think there's some tremendous wisdom in that. We live our lives for Him in the knowledge that one day we'll see him, whatever it ultimately ends up being. So hopefully that helps answer that question a little bit and, and, and hopefully to inspire a little bit of a sense of freedom to go ahead and live your life, but to live your life with Christ at the center of it. Um, not holding back from doing things because he might come today, but going full throttle into those things uh, because he might come today and put him in the middle of it and live for him in the midst of it. So, um, so anyway, why don't we just leave it there? And uh, Father, we just pray that you'd help us, we ask you, to help us to live that way, to not fret or, or worry or stress about, you know, is Jesus coming today? Should I do this or that or the other thing? Um, but rather to just go about living our lives with him at the center of all things, making our decisions, choosing our directions, seeking guidance for the things that we might want to do. Uh, we pray that he'd be at the middle of all of these things. And that, Father, when he finally comes, when you send him and he comes to get his bride, um, we won't have to be ashamed because we'll be walking with him, serving him in whatever context or capacity we're doing, whether, you know, whether we're just working or whether we're with our families or whether we're in ministry or whatever it might be. Father, we thank you for the freedom that comes in Christ. Help us to just look with anticipation and just be about our days and about our business, giving every part of it to you so that when we do stand before you, It'll just be like a natural thing. We went from here to there. Father, we thank you. We praise you and bless you for the beautiful, blessed hope you've given us. Help us to walk in it, anticipating it, because um, one day we're going to receive it. Thank you, Father, for all of your goodness, all of your grace, all of your mercy. These are things we don't deserve, but you are so generous and so gracious. Thank you for being so and for doing all that you've done to secure our place with you. Thank you, Father. We ask all this. In Jesus' name, amen.